0: Welcome to the Egg, the battle-worn concrete theater that has become the epicenter of Lebanon's revolution where when we visited, a rally of small business owners and entrepreneurs kicks off with a singing of the national anthem. Small business is the heartbeat of Lebanon's economy, and they've been terribly affected by the banking crisis since the revolution began, even more so since COVID and in the aftermath of the port blast. Our guide here in this moment in December 2019 is a singular voice in Lebanese media a young writer named Gilles Couri who writes a weekly whimsical slice of life column for the French language paper, L'Orient Le Jour, about Beirutis and their hopes and dreams, a column that he continues to this day in 2021 as a way of documenting the many lives in this great and battered city. This episode is about Gilles and about his path to writing, his dreams for Lebanon, We recorded this, of course, before the port explosion and before COVID, but his great dreams for Beirut and his thinking about the revolutionary mindset that it will take to achieve those dreams, well, they still stand. This is Nathan Thornburg and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to the trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So now we're coming out of up out of the main floor of the protest. Yes.
1: And we are into the egg. Yes, into the egg which is which was always like a, a landmark but a, like a forbidden one. Why but forbidden? N- because it was basically this was built in the 19, in 1965. Okay. And this was meant to be to become like a big shopping center with a theater that we're going to get into now. Ah. And during the war It was closed to the public and it was, it became a property of Solidaire, which is a big, you know, holding that took over the whole um, area here. And this was closed and no one was able to get in the egg for the, for the, since, even after the war ended. And when the revolution started, people got into the egg and it has become like a very important, you know, symbol of, reclaiming public spaces and reclaiming the city. Sure. And. and uh,
0: I mean, to have something like this, which looks... I mean, it's not, it's not like an upright egg. It's kind of a little bit of a squashed egg. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A bit of a squashed concrete yeah. egg. But it's a, we
1: call it the dome as well. There are two names, the ah. dome and the, and the egg. And uh, so, so many conferences and talks have been happening here since the revolution started and uh, and
0: as it says here on the floor exactly what a revolution
1: and it's but, a, it's amazing because i mean personally i was every time i would you know walk you know under under the egg or you know i would have never imagined that one day i could actually be sitting here and and you know being part of a, of a talk or like it happened so many times since uh, october 17th and and as i was saying it's I think for all of us, all of downtown before the revolution was like so privatized. It was so. It was like a forbidden, uh, forbidden space within the city. It was all owned by private companies, which most of the most most of it was owned by Solidaires very problematic uh, uh, company and now being able, you know, to have uh, people selling flags, you know, a coin vendor having talks here and it's just like amazing. Like we are reclaiming our own city that was for the longest time forbidden to us. Right.
0: Which is kind of like the neoliberal vision of a a totally. renewed downtown totally. that belongs yeah, to yeah. no man, just belongs to the capital, right?
1: Totally, and, and I think that this revolution is a, the, I mean, it's not just about, it's about so many things. It's, it's a very cultural one at the same time. It's, it's, it's very liberating for everyone. You feel that there's a libera- liberation and there, is, there are so many walls that are falling, so many, yeah, so one of those is the egg. I mean, the egg, being riding, in the the Most of those tags happened yeah. after October seventeenth. Wow. All of those tags.
0: So the artists have come out as well mm-hmm. to, to yeah. sell theirs.
1: All over, all over downtown. You can you know, on the on the walls of the city. You can you can see like traces of of, of the graffiti. People. Yes, here. just trying to look at the year it was built. Yeah, sixty-five. I was not mistaken. Wow. Um, basically, the egg was part of a, of a complex that was called Beirut City Center. Uh, two, uh, one, one building was supposed to be to, you know, built here yeah. and then because of the war this never happened and the egg remains like the egg for, for all of this time.
0: A lonely, isolated, solitary, yes. off-limit egg. Wow.
1: This was a move this was meant to be a- this was meant to be a movie theater as you can see yeah the screen was supposed to be
0: there this never really turned into the cinema I think
1: I think it did but the whole project as a whole as I was saying yeah. this was like a, was supposed to be like a called beirut city center it yeah. was this plus a building with a like uh, shops and so on yeah. and this I think functioned for some time and but but the building didn't wasn't I mean it wasn't built so yeah. because of the war so it did it did there are a few pictures of people actually watching movies oh, really here. yeah
0: it looks like there are bullet holes here somebody shot yes this because up.
1: because a lot of snipers were during the war were uh, actually having this as a base at some point
0: uh-huh yeah well that's a reminder
1: huh mm-hmm this was one of the only uh, buildings or structures that remained the way it was after the war, and as we were saying, it was actually a reminder, because we had—be careful—we had—we have this tendency when you look at downtown to just live in a sort of denial, you know, yeah. try to reconstruct and just forget. And I think that the egg was—people were fighting for the egg not to be not to be demolished or not to be just to be conserved because we needed this reminder.
0: So, to set the scene here, Gilles is not wrong that this section of the heart of downtown Beirut is a bit like a gilded DMZ. The buildings are impressive, imposing, a river of gold and marble flowing down from the Mohammed Al-Amin Mosque to the port on the Mediterranean. But you can see even through the debris of the revolution, the makeshift tents, the oil drums turned into furnaces for warmth. That before it was occupied by the idealistic Lebanese revolutionaries, it was an empty and soulless temple to capital. You see the same empty luxury condo buildings that have infected my city of New York. Only here the windows have been smashed in, their walls tagged with slogans of rebirth and revolution. It is messy, yes, but somebody obviously needed to rearrange the face of this corrupted downtown. And that is what is happening. Back to Gilles.
1: I was walking here because basically in this building here, where where you can see Dunkin' Donuts, you have the French and the UK consulates, basically. That's where you go and you present your documents to have your visas. And I was here like a few days before all of this started, and the city was different. The city changed from one day to another. Wow. There is something crazy that happened. Like, this this was never... We never had this kind of energy here. People coming together and... And this was, like, really reserved for a very, very, very privileged group of people, a group of Lebanese. And now who, you have...
0: Who could come to this area yeah, because, and because, spend time.
1: Because all of this, uh, all of downtown was either very expensive restaurants or very expensive shops or parkings. There, there is no such thing as public spaces in Lebanon. It's the first time that you can that you see people actually sleeping on the floor and spending days here and selling flags and having a shisha, and this is something that is, I think is great.
0: I mean, even the act of being a vendor selling flags on a street corner doesn't seem that revolutionary, but, but they, it is they would us. have been arrested or swept away or something. They would never
1: dare and come here in the first place because wow. it's so intimidating. Look at the buildings, look at right. everything. It's so polished. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's so polished, and it's all owned by people who are affiliated to the government. To, the, to all the previous and the, the our last government so it's all you feel that that the, this whole area was 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 basically just held by just a group of people and and the rest of the country felt that this was not theirs and it's the first time that those people feel actually that they own this city which yeah. is which is it's hard to it's hard to conceive for for someone like you who doesn't you know but, but for us, like Beirut and especially downtown, we always felt it was, and it was owned by Solidaire, but by this, by this group. So it's the first time that we actually are reclaiming our city. And this is a big part of the revolution. It's wow. a very big part of it. Like drawing on the walls, having, tagging the walls is something that we would never thought, would have never thought of being able to do one day.
0: Right next to the martyr statue in Martyr Square, a breathtaking monument to the souls lost in the Civil War, Nasser and his wife and dog and children and mother-in-law, they are all making their own statement. All eight of them have been living in a small tarp-covered tent since the first day of the revolution months ago when they came down from Tripoli up the coast to demand their basic rights, chiefly but not limited to the right to housing. And as we talk to them, they unveiled a dark bit of irony about their time as citizen revolutionaries. Nasser, the father of the family, has just one leg. He lost the other leg in battle with the Israelis in 1989. And yet when the thugs from the Amal party came to beat his family at rallies, they have done so while hurling the worst insult they can think of at this brave and obviously patriotic family that they are Zionists plotting with Israel to take down the government. And with that, and with a shake of the head, Gilles and I retired from the heart of the revolution and rode back to Hamra to talk more about his life before and during the uprising. So we're in the Hamra neighborhood, and mm-hmm. as we were driving here, you had pointed out the, uh, the American University. So this place has a lot yes. of memories for you. Yeah. This is where you went to school.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it makes me, it, I mean, as I was telling you, I'm, I have mixed feelings when it comes to those years because I w- was not very happy in the, in the major I was, uh, I was enrolled in. But at the same time, it's always like this nostalgia. And I, I, I think that the whole of Beirut has, has this nostalgic feel when you, when you walk around and uh, especially this Hamra neighborhood and the AUB the campus. so I always feel nostalgic all around the city, but specifically here, because of, the, of my teenage memories, I think.
0: Why were you trying to be an engineer?
1: Because, I mean, this goes back again to the way we're brought up in, in Lebanon, and I was, um, I was in a Catholic school where um, boys are raised to become engineers or doctors or lawyers. And since I was I happened to be good in math and physics, I um, I was recommended to become an engineer. And I and I always was very tough on myself because of this this again this Catholic um, academic system that pushes you always to be tough on yourself and to work harder. And so I thought that I should pursue the most difficult thing, and uh, which is to become an engineer at AUB. And so I think I was. I was. Uh, it was kind of a pressure of this whole system, but I don't think that you can swim against the the current against your heart for a long time. So no, I nobody
0: ever asked you. You never asked yourself what you actually wanted.
1: I always knew I wanted to become a writer. I always knew since day one. But I just, um, I just, I just thought that I should not go for the easiest path for some reason. I think this, is the, um, it's. I don't know, I was trying to be tougher myself, I think, like I was taught to be here yeah,
0: hmm fair enough, it didn't work
1: it didn't i was I was miserable, but I wanted to get this degree and then I switched to to journalism to writing but i but I did like a full four years of of engineering it was it was I, very intense
0: it's that's a great amount of time to do something yeah, in do order really to sure. find out that you actually do hate it as much as you think you hate it
1: I knew I hated it from the first day of school i mean first day of of university. It was not a surprise but uh, but still I, I i mean again, I think that when we live in such an an uncertain city because Beirut, as we witness now with the revolution it's really as I was telling you yesterday, it's really the city of it's it's a big question mark. We never know where we 're going to be tomorrow, and that 's why we party so hard and that 's why we we laugh so much and that 's why we drink so much and that 's why at the same time we worry so much and I think that being a writer in a city like Beirut is something that is not it could be worrisome so being an engineer is was maybe in the back of my mind it was a safer the safest option. Uh, so you'd
0: know you'd always have a job.
1: Exactly. It was like uh, yeah. It was a it was it was, a safety net. I think.
0: Some kind of small way of mm-hmm. organizing, controlling yeah. a very uncontrollable exactly. city. Exactly. So describe your column to me. What what is this weekly uh, act yes. of writing that you commit?
1: <clears throat> so basically, it's called uh, roman which uh, means. Um, how, how, are, how are we going to... we going uh, photo novel photo novel sure so um i used to i used to take pictures i don't like to call myself a photographer but i used to do it very very just you know just for myself and so i wanted to combine those two things in um in a column and i don't again i don't like to um, to describe myself as a journalist i like to call myself an observer that's how i i see myself and i And I'm a dreamer and observer at the same time. And part of me is a journalist, of course. So I wanted to combine all of this in a column because, again, the newspaper gave me the freedom to come up with with, um, any type of column I wanted. So I suggested to start every week with a picture that is um, 90% of the times taken in Beirut and to create a story, a fiction around this picture and uh, the idea is to tackle each week a theme that is of course linked to Lebanon but uh, but is i mean it's, it could be uh, anything and so basically i create this story every monday it could be the story of i don't know of uh, of an old guy i met on the street and i just talk to him and i create a story it could be bigger themes i talk about gender i talk about a lot about um, about women and this year, especially, I've been talking a lot about women in Beirut. And now with the revolution, we've been seeing their role, their crucial role in this revolution, which is funny. I talk about social, social topics, about, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say. It's just, it could be like a small detail on the street. It could be a memory from my childhood. It can be just a question that I have and that I formulate as a, as a story.
0: It's amazing. And, yeah. and the uh, L'Orient is a a very well-known paper. You called it sort of the New York Times of yes. Beirut. And uh, to bring such a beautifully bullshit idea to them as a young journalist and have them say yes. I mean, I think I pitched something that was not the same in form, but kind of in, in uh, essence to uh, like The Stranger, the Alt News Weekly in Seattle when I was writing there and they mm-hmm. were like, Sorry, kid. Like,
1: no, it's not we're,
0: we're a newspaper. We're not <laughs> gonna do. So I think it's just doubly impressive that, as a uh, as as a well-established and establishment paper, mm-hmm. that they've sort of uh, opened their this page of the culture section to you um, to write these kind of fictionalized versions. Mm-hmm. But even I mean, just as we were walking around the revolution, and we. Uh, met this man who had lost his leg fighting yeah. against the Israelis and is now being accused of being a, a pro-Zionist by Amal crazy. thugs mm-hmm. because he's taking part in the revolution. You know, the the narrative, the the you know the the short stories are all around you here.
1: Exactly, and even I I always I always um, like to compare Beirut to a movie set. It's crazy every time I I, I walk even under my house under my office I feel that. The things come to me, and every week sometimes I panic because I have to submit my my piece every Friday morning, and my editor goes crazy because I'm always late. But sometimes I'm on my way to work on on Friday morning, and I just look at something, I just look at someone, I just remember what happened last night, and the story comes, you know, in a in a, it's 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 almost like a it's a magic lyrica moment where the the story comes to me, and I and it always sometimes it happens that that the the idea you know um, the the idea is a last minute thing it's 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 always the case i, I never predict what i'm going to go sometimes of course i know i want to tackle this uh, subject and sometimes there are things that you know uh, like now the revolution of course i can't not talk about this every week it's been uh, over a month but in normal times, I like to say normal times because of revolution times. You're making air
0: quotes around yes. <laughs> normal. So normal's never too normal it's, here.
1: I like to call it an abnormal normality. We're right. going to talk about this, I think, at some point. But um, as I was saying, I never predict my topics. It always comes to me. It's and not me who chooses my topics.
0: Um And sometimes you're writing your editor to say, "Listen, I'm just going to take a walk. I know it's Friday morning, <laughs> but I'm going to take a walk and see see what column is going to come to me yeah, yeah yeah
1: uh, that's exactly how it happens it It's exactly how it happens and sometimes i I start a piece on on Thursday and then Friday morning, something else more significant, more you know touching happens and and this is how it it it, it starts
0: How would you write the story of uh of the man that we met today? Uh, as a as a fictionalized version I mean how do you get out of the way of uh of an intense reality sometimes
1: um i I like to play basically i like uh, i like to impersonate the people, so basically I like to write in the first in the first person as if I was this man that 's maybe how I would I would do it or i would um write it i would pretend to be his dog maybe and write it.
0: I'm pretty sure he called his dog Booger, but it might have been Booker.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure his dog knows so many things. So maybe I'll be the dog saying the story. I don't know. The dog is watching
0: a lot. That Mm -hmm. is true. Um, And and it'd be nice to uh, be that dog because they also had mentioned uh, right after I'd kind of went down to say hi to it that he bites. Yeah. So this is is a first-person perspective with an edge, right? (laughs) Definitely. He's... uh, Booger, as I'll call him, was you know sitting there by Martyr's Square, just eyeing everybody with a lot of a lot of bitterness. Uh, and knowing
1: and so much about uh, his uh, what was his name, Nasir? Yeah, yeah Nasir, yeah, his yeah, owner. Yeah.
0: That is true. But you're right about Beirut. It's I mean, even as uh, to to prove its own point, uh, the Muzain has sort of like come into this room mm-hmm. with the call to prayer outside. Yes, it feels I can like. Hear it. Yeah, I'll give it a, a moment to breathe there.
1: 6 <laughs> it's 6 p.m. in Beirut.
0: It's 6 p.m. in Beirut. Do you know where your maze is?
1: <laughs> it's not far. I, I think it's uh, you know, it's down the street. It is just down know? the
0: street. But it's uh, you know, it's a city that intrudes, right? It's like mm-hmm. a city that's always just kind of feels like it's coming in, you know. It's it, it, it it's not going to be held at bay not by walls or windows.
1: And I mean, every time I walk on the streets in Beirut, I realize that people live a lot in contact with the outside. When you look at 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 people's homes, at the buildings, it's always lit. You can always see people, you know, doing things, and I enjoy this very, you know, uh, soft voy- voyeurism in Beirut. That is interesting because people are. I generally think that people are so open and 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 transparent and genuine, and they don't like to be, you know. Hidden in in their in their homes, they're always on the outside. So the the noises come in and they come out. And you, I like this a lot about Beirut. I
0: I feel like this is something I hear continually about, like uh, refugee resettlement or other kinds of just in migration mm-hmm. uh, from the Middle East to the United States. Like one of the most challenging things about being a Middle Easterner in the U. S., particularly in the suburbs, where. These poor souls are often dropped. Is is that that doesn't exist? You know mm-hmm. that we have walls that are, you know, there for a reason to keep you know family out of sight yeah. and you know to keep uh, the rest of the world from intruding mm-hmm. in. Uh, it can be very isolating. I think
1: we don't like walls here. We don't. I don't think we we do. We're not into walls at all. We're we're into bridges. And and uh, sp- especially now, I can see that. Uh, more than ever, we've been building so many bridges in the past uh, 50 days between different age groups, between different religions, between different social classes and backgrounds. It's, it's crazy. I feel that really there is a mixture of things that um, is, is happening and is so moving. When you make
2: decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: What was the spark for the revolution? What was that first... That first little
1: flint. It's um, all the I mean all the press have been talking about this WhatsApp tax, but um, so basically just to put things in context, what happened the day before the revolution started is that the government, who's I think one of the most corrupted governments in the entire world, it's I like to call it a mafia. It's more than a gov- it's not even a government. They don't deserve this title in my opinion. So basically, they um, decided to impose a tax on WhatsApp, that is a free service by essence. And uh, you have to know that WhatsApp is really an application that everyone uses in Lebanon, and an application that people use to, you know, to be in touch with with their families abroad. Because we have so each family has at least one or two uh, members who are living abroad because of you know because of the situation here and because the immigration is. So high, and since the war ended, and since the the, the the economical situation has been starting to, to to collapse, so um, so they tried to basically tax WhatsApp, and this was completely crazy. And people went on the streets not because of this WhatsApp tax, but because of everything. I think that it was you know the, the final you know the final straw. The final straw. Uh, so and it uh, is
0: I have to say. It is an astonishing thing to try to tax WhatsApp. That is like that's innovation and bullshit governance right there.
1: Hundred percent. And even if people are saying it's WhatsApp is not important, it was just you know the final straw. I think that coming to think about it, I'm going to contradict myself. It is important because I think that you can't. I'm sorry for the word bullshit, people. To the point of taxing something that is free it's like taxing the air. Like what? How can you do such a thing? And um, this comes, you know, after so many things. A few days before this WhatsApp tax idea, there were fires all over, um, all over Lebanon. No one from the government did anything, even to try to stop those fires.
0: These People, are wildfires or house fires? or
1: Those were wildfires. But even there are question marks around those fires. But, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter. The thing is that no one from the government did anything to try to stop those fires. And I think that people, I, I could feel that people were getting angry and angry. And this comes again after 30 to 40 years of corruption, of feeling used and abused by the system, of like this guy was telling us on the streets a few hours ago, we don't have our basic rights. We don't have electricity 24 hours. We, um, they're trying to tax free internet. The internet is so expensive. Even, uh, you know, um, everything. I, I, I don't know where to start. It, it's hard to, to... A friend of mine from from the States was telling me, where does the problem... How can you describe the problem? And it took me like two minutes to start. I don't know where to start. Everything is wrong. And at the same time, everything is wrong in in the most beautiful place in the world, in my opinion. And this is what is... What, this is what is you know keeping us here, but at the same time making us so angry. It's like watching someone you love destroying uh, themselves. That's the feeling I have when I live in Beirut, and it's not even yeah. So it's it's like a, a beautiful woman that 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 is being beaten up, and and you can you can watch her, you know, by the hour, you know, being changing, and and you want to do something to save this woman. You want to do something, and. Because you love her, but at the same time, you feel it's a lost cause, but no, but you, you know it's all of those feelings that 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 happen at the same time.
0: Now, you were born right at the end of the civil war, right yes. so you don't have a memory of of the last time that sort of terrible things happened to this country
1: um i I, I do have some memories because um, looking at my mother today looking at her fears looking at the way she looks at me every time i tell her i'm going to go and i'm going to go and i'm going to protest um seeing the fear in her eyes is you know is enough for me to go back to the war even if i never
0: you can reconstruct yeah, it in your mind I make a mental, a mental map of it through
1: and even when i when i try and i open my my mom's family albums and i see nothing because her house was robbed and she couldn't get well at the age of 18 she had to you know to leave to to France because of the war she has no pictures of her childhood in Lebanon just this this void is enough um is is is, is a reminder of the war even if i know nothing about it and i think that the the memories, the the everything that comes from you know as a package that our family gave us all of this is enough for us to be living the war without living it. So, uh, and then I do have memories of the Israeli war in 2006 when they—it uh, was a, a horrible uh, memory. So yeah, I do have a memory of this.
0: Yeah, this is when Bourdain was here also, exactly. and the bombing started, and exactly. uh, his true crew got yeah. trapped for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was 2006 like for Beirut?
1: I mean, it's the only war I witnessed. Uh, luckily enough, I was not—I I was not really in, a, in an area that was touched because the Israelis were really bombing specific areas, uh, a lot of areas in Lebanon, but specific areas in Beirut. But uh, I could feel it because so many people from the, the southern suburbs of Beirut started—you know—had to leave. And started coming, and they were, you know, all over Beirut, all over the country. So I could feel their pain. I could feel it. I could. It was already a time where, where I was, you know, stuck on television. I, I could see, I could see things happening by the hour. So I, I was still 16 back then, but I was so contaminated. I was so unwell. And it was a very violent war because uh, yeah, the, the, the Israelis weren't sweet at all. They were really, you know, they going, were just, yeah. They
0: just go, pounding yeah, airstrikes. Yeah,
1: as they always do. So, yeah, so, um, yeah it, was, it was my first encounter. The, the, the encounter with the civil war, as I was saying, was, you know, memories, feelings, emotions that I inherited from my parents. But this was really my first uh, contact with, with such, such, such violence.
0: How did living through that and and through the void of the civil war, I mean, how did it affect the way that you are viewing what's happening with the revolution now?
1: Um, Listen, I think that the fact that I didn't live the civil war effectively makes me fearless. I'm not afraid today. I'm not afraid and I'm willing to fight. Of course, not fight like my parents generation did like i would not fight with 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 weapons i'm going to fight with my words i'm going to just be present on the ground and that's what i'll be doing and um, again the fact that i didn't live the civil war is a blessing because again as i was saying my mother when when she knows i'm on the streets and it gets heated automatically she predicts a civil war there's the the ghost of the civil war that is constantly you know threatening us in her eyes uh, but for me, I'm not afraid, and I have hope, and and maybe I'm too idealistic, as some older friends tell me. But I think that that's because I didn't like effectively live the the civil war on a daily basis. Right,
0: and this this revolution, it, from the way that you describe it, sounds almost like a, an antidote to the civil war. Right, it's like it's not mm. pitting Muslim against Christian against Druze. It's pitting you know kind of. The future against the past, the you know the uh, the, the the poor and the ambitious against yeah. the corrupt and the sclerotic, right? Yeah, it's, the different battle lines.
1: If I had to describe it, I would say it's um, at the same time it's repairing the mistakes that our parents made, and we cannot blame them because those mistakes were uh, the consequence of a war. What I mean by that is that, after the war, our parents were so exhausted after fifteen years of civil war, after losing family, after losing everything, um, they had to do compromises with this corrupted mafia, so they would accept no electricity and they would accept to have to you know uh, buy water. Can you believe that we we're a country where it snows for three full months, we have so much resources, we have so much water, but all summer we have to buy water to shower and to just use water. That's crazy. And so our parents had to accept all of this because for the sake of, you know, of just, you know, I'm going to accept this just because I need to have some, I need to be calm, I just need to have a certain normality. So that would accept everything just for this abnormal normality we are not willing to accept this anymore. And I think that, again, so as I was saying, this, this revolution is a way of repairing their mistakes, of not accepting to compromise, and at the same time of building a future. So it's, it's a war that's, it's again, against the past somehow, and it's for the future. That's how I see it. And it's deconstructing not just the corruption and not just the system, but everything that was around it. Uh, patriarchy, uh, nepotism, uh, corruption—it's—it's it's everything that's being dismantled. And of course, it's too ambitious, and of course, it's too much to ask. But we are asking for the impossible, and and we know that we're asking for the impossible. But but we're not going to ask for less. What happens next? Um, oof, that's a that's a big question. It's just. Um, for now, it's fighting. It's fighting and fighting in the most, you know, civil and peaceful way. Again, because I I use the word fighting, but I'm not like uh, yeah. And it's just fighting, and then it's gonna it's gonna take time to. It's we have so many fights. We need to have a government. That's the first thing we need to have.
0: The prime minister already resigned.
1: The prime minister resigned uh, 40 days ago. And till now, they haven't started the consultations to create a new government. Can you believe this? The country is collapsing economically, and they're still taking all the time in the world to create a new government. This is more of an insult. And I think that everything that they're doing is going to basically um, decide for the next steps. Because they're... I think that everything they're doing is making it even worse. And, and this anger that, it, that it, this is creating in us is going to basically dictate our next steps. We're so angry that I think that this anger is going to be used, of course, in a productive way, but it's going to be... This is what's going to dictate our, our next uh, steps.
0: And these, the, the process, is there a specific ask for, like, I don't know a, a, a new election, a new yeah.
1: so it's very clear first of all, we are asking for an uh, what we call a technocrats government, which is a gov usually the governments here are uh, created in in a such a uh, such a weird way. It's basically a pie that they try to you know that they try to divide between themselves. So basically this uh, party takes, uh, takes this cabinet and this party takes this cabinet. So basically they're like, you know, it's like a mafia basically trading cabinets. And so this, and <clears throat> it's also based on religion. So, okay, so we're going to give uh, two Christian seats, uh, three Shia seats, uh, two or, I don't know, I'm just giving examples. And what we're asking for, and so basically the the minister of the of I don't know of education has nothing to do with education. He happens to be a Christian Maronite who is with this party, so we're gonna give him this seat, which is absurd. What we're asking for is so basic is to have the people who are actually the most convenient for this cabinet to, you know, just to construct a normal, like in any other country in the world, just have a technocrats government with people who are, each one, uh, specific to the discipline that he's tackling through his cabinet. And this is what we're asking for. And, of course, not based on on political parties and not based on religion as well.
0: I mean, is the danger that that power will get out of whack between Hezbollah and the Christian factions and...
1: Yes, I think that uh, this demand of hours put everyone puts everyone at risk because I think that no one is willing for so many different reasons. I, mean, I don't feel like discussing like really politics now, but I think that of course the Hezbollah is going to be threatened, but all other parties who use basically uh, governments to be able to steal as much as they, as they want won't be able to do so now that they're if they're out. So they're all trying at the same time to you know to find ways to outsmart us and to still... you know uh, so that now they 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 they're, 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 they're um, suggesting a technopolit technopolitics government basically which is a mix between um, a few politicians and few specialists which is absurd because still if they have a hand on this government, they can still do whatever they want to do, and they can still... steal. The- They'll have their
0: hand in the cookie jar still.
1: Totally, so... Uh, but
0: it is fascinating, because it, it... Right, it only... This only works if, if they're still afraid, if people are still afraid of what Lebanon could be. And so they accept what it is. Mm. So it really is a function of time after the end of the war, or people like you who simply don't feel you have to accept the status quo and that that whatever you know in that brave new future whatever comes is actually could be better than what it is today mm-hmm. that feels like a radical reshaping of like yeah. how someone thinks about their own country here
1: I I, I think that when you the, the concept of of being part of a revolution you cannot do it in a in a polite way or in a institution I I mean you a revolution has to be radical by essence you cannot you can, because you cannot like you cannot change a system and still accept a, a technopolitician government it doesn't make sense a revolution by essence is just throwing everything out of the table and like a tabula rasa and having like everything that is brand new and that's what a change is at the end of the day so we have to be radical this is this, this is why i was talking about Asking for the impossible because there is no revolution that is reasonable. The minute you get reasonable, it's not a revolution anymore. It becomes like a deal. And we are not here for a deal. We're here for a for a you know radical change.
0: The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Theme music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week is our last from Beirut. But if we have to leave, and we do, we're going out with a drink in hand. We're taking a road trip through the fertile wine country of the Bekaa Valley, with the host of the podcast B is for Bacchus, Barabaru. We will meet you there.